Good morning. Um, as Caitlin said, I'm Morag. Um, I'm one of the home group leaders here at Kingdom Vineyard. And Jim and Rachel have trusted me to continue our sermon series in Acts. And I suppose, seeing as we're on the podcast, we better behave ourselves. So, um, Speaking of the podcasts, if you have missed any of our series in Acts so far... I would recommend uh, catching up on the podcasts which are available on the Kingdom Vineyard website. We've had great talks on the Ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, and the difference that that makes to the apostles and in the early days of the church, and consequently what difference that makes to us. Jim spoke a few weeks back about Peter and John heading up to the temple to worship and healing the lame beggar they met on the way. And last week, uh, Jesse spoke about Peter taking the opportunity of the stir they just caused to teach the crowd about Jesus. I'm picking up on the continuation of that incident. The healing of the lame man causes a stir among the crowds in the temple, which then draws the attention of the temple authorities. Let's pick it up from there at the start of Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Got competition. (laughs) They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So I'm going to look at the passage in the same way as Jesse tackled things last week, because quite simply, it's a good way to tackle the scriptures. 
And that's by asking three questions. What did this mean to the original hearers? What does it mean to everyone reading it? And does God have anything to say specifically to us through this passage today? To understand what it meant to the original hearers, there are a few things in the passage we just need to understand the background of. The priests, captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees were all linked. These were the guys, and they would be guys, who held the power in the temple. They were the ruling class, the aristocracy, and power was held by a few select families. They were also collaborationists, which meant that in order to hold on to their lifestyle, wealth, and power, they colluded with the Romans. And whilst the Romans were fairly religiously tolerant, they did not tolerate public disorder and cracked down heavily on that. So to keep their cushy status, the priestly families would also crack down on any potential flashpoints. And the stir Peter and John have caused is a potential flashpoint. Also, being part of the faction known as the Sadducees meant that they did not believe in a resurrection. They were the ones who tried to catch Jesus out with a question about a woman who ended up marrying seven brothers as each one died in succession. So whose wife would she be at the resurrection? And you can read about that and Jesus' response in Mark chapter 12. So Peter preaching Jesus' resurrection was particularly obnoxious to this group of people. They clearly scoffed at those who didn't believe in it, hence their question to Jesus. And there are people who will still scoff at believing in Jesus' resurrection, and indeed in internal, eternal life or life after death. And whilst we don't have the advantage that Peter and John had of witnessing and spending time with the risen Jesus, we can, as we've said before, tell of what we do know and what we have seen and how we have encountered Jesus. There's also another reason why those in power don't like people preaching resurrection from the dead. People who are no longer afraid of death are no longer afraid of dying for what they believe in. And the power holders have their main threat of intimidation taken away from them. So the authorities are quick to swoop in and put a stop to the apostles' teaching. Although it would seem that they were a bit late, as we see in verse 4, that many who heard the message believed, and the number of believers takes another jump to 5,000. If I can take a small detour, I'm going to show you this. I got this wonderful book for Christmas um, as a Christmas present, and I just want to say thank you to the Matchets who gave it to me. It's called the Infographic Bible. It presents a lot of stats and information in the Bible in graphical pictorial form, um, like the number of times Jesus speaks on certain topics or the way that language is used in the Old Testament. It's just, it, there's so much in it, and I have barely scratched the surface in it. But one of the images that really jumped out at me was the graphic about Pentecost. I'll show you this. 
This is not very good for those on the podcast, but anyway, we'll try and, try and explain it. Um, you've got 12 people, and this is basically what happens at Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And then, to the same scale, you have a start of who you see there. doesn't stop there. As I say, to try and explain to those on the podcast, you've got 12 people who take up a tiny part of the whole page, and then you've got four and a bit full pages that represent the 3,000. And then you've got another few pages that would represent the 5,000 that we've just added today. It really gives a visual impact of how dramatic and explosive the expansion of the church was from just 12 people to thousands and thousands in a very short period of time. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. But back to today's passage. After having Peter and John locked up for the night, the authorities convened to question them. The names listed here presumably maybe meant something to Luke's original hearers, and Luke is the author of the book of Acts. But the point he's making is that anyone who is anybody is there. And their question is, by what power in who, or in whose name did you do this? I.e., how did you heal, heal the lame man? They're asking, how did you do this, and who gave you the authority? The next line is my favourite. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that Luke sees fit to point out that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled at Pentecost and is filled right now for this situation. And Peter lays it out. Are we really being pulled up for being kind? Well, if we are, here's the thing. We did this in the name of Jesus, by his power, and his authority, the one you crucified and God raised from the dead. Peter is suggesting that the authorities in charge of Israel's spiritual life are in direct opposition to God. In case they miss that suggestion, he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22, and he says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The actual verse in the psalm says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But Peter rams home his point by saying, you builders, you rejected Jesus, who has now become so important and is God's plan for salvation. Peter's audience and Luke's audience would be familiar with this psalm and probably with the imagery that it invokes. But for us, we might need to give it a bit more thought, which our home group did on Thursday night when we read Mark chapter 12, where Jesus quotes this psalm in relation to himself. So here are some of our thoughts. Um, so I'm not taking credit for all these myself. If someone is rejected, there must be something clearly wrong. Maybe they're weak, flawed, or just not suitable. So to humanize, in the eyes of the builders, it can't be used. 
and it's thrown on the scrap heap. However, in God's eyes, this is the very thing he chooses to use. And not just in a minor role, but in an absolutely vital position on which the whole rest of the building depends. Different translations call the stone either the capstone or the cornerstone. And in the capstone, it would be the stone at the top of an arch, which is sometimes an oddly shaped stone, but when it's put in place, holds the two sides of the arch in perfect tension. And it's been suggested that maybe as Jesus, as the capstone, would hold together the Jews and non-Jews, bringing salvation to the whole world and bringing us all into the new kingdom. Other translations, as I say, is the cornerstone. And this is the stone that's placed in the foundation of a building from which all the measurements are taken. It influences the whole building. The strength and the aesthetics of the building depend on the cornerstone. This council, the Sanhedrin, the keepers of the spiritual life of Israel, have rejected the very person through whom God is bringing salvation to the whole world. The very person on whom God is building his new temple and new kingdom, whose character will infuse all the living stones which are being built together in his name. The council is still reeling from this accusation. Peter doesn't let up. And in verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Israel expected salvation to come from Israel through the Messiah. But as Israel's leaders had rejected Jesus, they'd also rejected God's salvation, the only way to have a restored relationship with God. This statement that salvation comes through Jesus alone still offends many people. It's too exclusive. Surely there are different ways to find God, different paths for life. I would say there are many, many ways that lead to Jesus. I bet every Christian in this room took a different route to Jesus. But the only way for a restored, put right relationship with God that allows us to be fully as God made us to be and to have eternal life is through Jesus. I look at this through a similar lens as Jesse took with tithing last week. Last week, Jesse said his thoughts on tithing were transformed when instead of focusing on the 10% he was giving that was never his in the first place, he focused on being thankful for the 90% he got to keep. And if you look in that on the statement in a similar way, instead of being hacked off that there's only one way to be saved, I'm really grateful that there's a way to be saved at all. We can be saved Hope is not lost. And the Jesus I've met is not exclusive. Jesus actively sought out the marginalized, the rejected, those nobody else would want in their circle. He even spent time with Gentiles and sinners. 
Jesus loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved. Jim sent me a thing on Twitter this morning, um, just a testimony about, there's a few people nodding, I sent it around. Um, it was a guy, Joel, was in an Uber taxi last night and uh, he shared Jesus with his, his taxi driver. Um, his manish uh, was a Hindu but his wife was sick. She had a, a bad back for three years. She was in a lot of pain. And uh, Joel shared with him that Jesus was the only true God. They prayed for his wife over the phone, and she was healed. And Manish acknowledged that Jesus was God. To that, for me, that just says, yes, it's there's only one way, but look at that. He just opens up to everybody. Jesus will show himself to anybody who asks. And I love that testimony, but I really wish we could have one in this church, don't you? <laughs> I would really love it to be our testimonies that we're sharing. Anyway, that's completely off track anyway. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Peter has not held back. He has unequivocally called out Israel's leaders as being against God by rejecting Jesus. And they are gobsmacked. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John have failed to be intimidated. Peter has handled scripture with the authority of someone with rabbinical training, but he hasn't had any training. Peter and John are fishermen from backwater Galilee. The only thing that accounts for this, that the Sanhedrin can see, is that these men have been with Jesus. What does that mean? Are they going to be as problematic to the authorities as Jesus was? Are they going to have to deal, th deal with them like they did with Jesus? And this is their dilemma. But they also have thousands of new followers to consider. And the indisputable evidence of a lame man from birth who can now walk. What do they do? Tune in next week to find out. <laughs> But I think I've pretty much covered my kind of first two questions of what the original hearers would understand from the passage and how we can understand the passage as we read through it. But do I think God has something specific to say to us today through the passage? I think so. And none of this will come as a surprise to anyone who has heard the last few messages in Acts. The preaching team do meet and discuss what we'll be teaching on, but rarely do we compare notes on the details of sermons. But you will often find threads that run through our series as God draws out similar themes for us. We are expectant. We believe that God wants to do amazing things here in East Fife and that he wants us to be involved. 
the same Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost is still here. And we can still be filled with that same Holy Spirit. My main point this morning, and you can write this down, is what a difference the Holy Spirit makes. Twelve people to 3,000 people to 5,000 people. The healing of the lame man was a threefold miracle. In the name of Jesus, he was healed. Peter took the opportunity to teach the crowd and 5,000 were saved. After being arrested, Peter has the courage to speak and to speak incredibly well in front of the authorities, calling them to account. Miraculous healing, miraculous evangelism, and miraculous courage. This is the same Peter, remember, who not so long ago cowered in the courtyard of the high priest's house and denied that he'd been with Jesus. Now in front of that very same high priest, he owns it completely. I speak in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's noted and noticed that he had been with Jesus. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. I know someone who is pretty shy, a classic introvert, who because she believed that God has called her to teach, despite the fact that she has no formal theological training and is, as Peter and John were, unschooled and ordinary, she stood up and preached to her church this morning. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. The stone that the builders reject for being flawed or weak or unsuitable is the stone that God uses, not in a minor role, but a vital part in building his kingdom. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. I believe as we are filled and are being filled with the Holy Spirit that we should expect to see these same miracles. Some of you will pray for the sick in Jesus' name and they will get well. Some of you will be able to share your faith and see your friends, family, colleagues and complete strangers come to know Jesus. Some of you will be filled with courage in situations where you'd normally be afraid. And that will range from speaking truth to power like Peter did and changing society for the better. And make no mistake, some of you will do this. Or it might mean being able to get out of bed and facing the day. And that might even be the same person at different times. But the Holy Spirit will enable both miracles. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. Some of us are heading to the Vineyard National Leaders Conference next week. And this is the heading in the emails I've been sent about it this week. The kingdom is here. His spirit is with us. Now is the time. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says, Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the time of salvation. I don't think this is an accident. We're not alone. There is a sense of rising expectation across our movement. 
I feel a sense of preparation. The message that we're getting from studying Acts seemed to be, be prepared, get ready, be expectant. Now is the time. Please stand and I'll pray for us. If you would like the Holy Spirit to come and fill you, maybe for a particular situation that you're facing, like Peter, or you just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, an expectation of what God's going to do in your life, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time or the gazillionth time, then please come forward for prayer. If there's anything that you would like prayer for this morning, please do come forward and people who are in our home groups will come and stand with you and pray with you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much that you are here. that you want to be in us and to work through us. We welcome your presence. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the way to be saved and that we can be saved and that you can restore us to that right relationship with you. Father God, I thank you for all your goodness to us. Holy Spirit, have your way now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.